Right now we're visiting with our old friend Tom Gimble, the founder and CEO at LaSalle Network. Hi, Tom. Hey, John. How are you? Doing real well. The hiring pros' favorite question to ask from CNBC is an interview with you. Or, yeah, it's actually a story by Jennifer Liu about you. What's the story here? Well, the story is a great question to ask and a great question to be able to answer is, tell us a time where you really messed up and you cost the company money or lost sale. Why? And, yeah, keep going. Well, it, it, it gets away from the, the old-fashioned that when you and I were growing up uh, story of, tell us your biggest weakness, Right. And people come up with some sort of malarkey that beats around the bush and, and that type of thing. And, and my feeling is what's very much in vogue and should be is authenticity. And authenticity is being able to actually tell the truth, but then explain how it made you feel and what the real results were of that. And when you can share in an interview a big mistake that we all make from time to time, and then how you overcame that, you're sharing that you're human, that you acknowledge where you screw up, and then that you had the wherewithal and the ability to overcome it. That's a story that gets you a job. But you got to have the second part of that story, right? <laughs> I mean, I guess there's well, not much equity in saying, uh, well, I really lost a big account, and then I got fired. That's not a good story. No, that, that's not a good story, but I think, it, it, so let's say that did happen and you lost your job over costing the company something, you then lay out what you've learned from that. Yeah. The, I, did, I did a review of myself. These were the things I messed up. These were what I should have done. This is what I do in the future to not have it happen. I got to tell you, as an employer, I love that because I know that people are going to make mistakes, and if somebody's actually already made them on somebody else's dime, and they've learned from them, how great is that? Is this also true? I'm not, I've never been in a position to hire people, or just a couple of times did I have some input. But it seems to me like people will sometimes say how much they want the job, how good it will be for them. And in fact, if you're applying for a job, you're, everything you say should be how you'll be good for the company, right? Not, not, not how the company is good for you. That's exactly right. I, I love this. This is why I want to work here. But let me share with you what I'll provide for the company, what I'll do. I can, I can, I'm the hardest worker, and here's why and how. And I'll expedite this and that. And here's where I saved my previous company money. Here's the type of revenue I created in this vertical at my, my old company. When you demonstrate what you've accomplished before and how that impacted the company in a positive way, that saying you're a quick learner, that's a nice plus, right? I've rarely interviewed somebody where they said, hey, listen, I'm a very slow learner, but once I get there, I'm great, right? Most people don't say that, John. I wonder if it would feel like a gotcha question. I wonder if the employer should almost warn the prospective employee, I'm going to ask you to tell me about a failure, and I want it to be a failing, and then tell me how you got it right, but at least get your head around it. Because I would imagine a lot yeah. of people driving home after the interview that didn't go well thought, I should have said that, but I couldn't believe they asked me to genuinely tell them how I screwed up one time. Uh, number one, I, I don't disagree with you at all. I do believe that uh, a good interview is a conversation and that uh, the person driving it, the employer, should say, listen, I'm going to ask you a little bit of a, of a question you probably might not have been asked before, and I want you to 
take a few minutes and really think mm-hmm, about this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to hear of a real screw-up. One last and thing. And then give somebody a few minutes to process that. I don't think that's a bad thing. It's a story at CNBC.com today, too, a hiring pros. That would be you. Favorite question to ask candidates and how they should answer it. By the way, Tom, I got 60 seconds left, but we were talking on the air earlier today about how Portillo's and Mariano's, uh, Taco Bell, some of the restaurants that are established in Chicago or a big grocery store, say, are, uh, among other things, offering daily pay for employees if you want to rather than waiting until your next paycheck us to pay you on as you're leaving the door that day they're doing it i've not heard of that especially at major establishments like that have you heard of that and what do you think about that uh i I have heard of it that it's becoming something i'm not sure what it says about our society that that if people are getting paid daily it actually gives them more incentive to leave without notice and I think that that's a very difficult situation that creates fragility in the employer-employee relationship. So I don't necessarily love that. You know, salaried employees have always been twice a month. Hourlies tend to be weekly. And that's usually been uh, a situation that works. But I think in, in a labor shortage in the service industry, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. unless you're going to be like fast food in California that's now paying $20 an hour by state law, saw that. you're going to have to with ideas to, to get people uh, to want to work for you. Okay, that's Tom Gimble, founder, CEO at LaSalle Network. Tom, let's talk again next week. Beware of the $25 hamburger in California coming soon, John. John Williams here with Stephen Esposito, president of Yellowstone Wealth Management in Lake Forest. Stephen, how good is the economy right now? Hello, John. Uh, it's doing well, and I guess that's the problem with the Fed. Yeah, why do you say uh, that? I saw that was your take, and I, what's good? What's bad about it being this good? I agree with you. I agree wholeheartedly. The talk is that uh, since the numbers came out better on recent jobs numbers as far as uh, uh, GDP, all of that means the Fed may not be cutting as quickly as the street anticipated. The street was looking for about seven rate cuts. As you know, from our last conversation, I'm, that's not what I was looking for. I was looking for maybe four bring us down by one percentage point. So I think the markets were really looking for a massive uh, weakening of the economy, and therefore the Fed would follow up with high levels of uh, uh, reduction of rates, so to speak, bring them down much farther. And then they kind of pulled that back because the numbers were very good. The jobs numbers were once again not what the analysts looked for, and the GDP number isn't. So you had this situation where rates uh, – uh, ended up going a different direction, and the market sold off, at least the broad market, and we were back to the magnificent six. Mm-hmm. Uh. So now today, things are happening differently. So I think I think a good economy is great. I don't think it's hot, too hot or too cold. I do think it's almost Goldilocks right now, and you should invest accordingly. Well, what would happen, think about this, what would happen now that's not happening if they lowered the rates? What what else would we get? What What's the benefit for lowering interest rates since the economy seems to be doing well and inflation isn't as bad as it was? So what, what, do, we, what do we get if they lower rates that we're not getting now? Well, first of all, you have an inverted yield curve. Short rates are higher than long. That's not good for any of the financial institutions or just in general for lending. A lot of companies are refinancing, especially real estate. And that's a concern in the marketplace right now. Uh, they borrowed at one level. It's substantially higher now. And rates are really higher than they should be in relation to inflation. So you need – the marketplace is saying one thing, and the Fed is doing something else. Mm-hmm. The 10-year Treasury is just over four, and the short-term rates are higher. 
and the market doesn't like that. We want a, a normal uh, sloping yield curve so business can get back. I understand that. I don't, but I, I don't I, know. What, well, but I, I expected you would say something about real estate, which is just gigantic. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little frustrated right. that the Fed doesn't seem to care as much about that as 3% inflation. I absolutely agree with you. In fact, Jenna Yellen is speaking right now and just made that comment. They're worried about the commercial real estate side of it. Well, if you want to fix that or at least give it some uh, some room, some breathing room, then lower interest rates. Don't come back and fix it later. I think an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and you need that. So I, I agree with you 100%. The Fed should start cutting rates. I'm thinking they'll start in May anyway. I didn't think March would be the time. But if they start in May and they give that signal to the market, the markets can react accordingly. Mm. So let's hope that's what happens. And the Fed just is measured in its approach. But every time a different Fed governor comes on television, they say something different, and that confuses the markets. And then, of course, as we've talked, the algos kick in, the computer trading kicks in, and we have these wild swings in Wall Street. That's not good either. Why do you say the Magnificent Six? Um, they've taken Tesla out of the Magnificent Seven, from what I've been told. That's what I heard on <laughs> On business news, because yeah. Tesla's down what, 50% in three years, something like that. Yeah. Uh, so now they're saying Magnificent Six, and they're talking about putting somebody else in that grouping. But you know, that's 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 31% of the market cap. That's higher than the dot-com bubble, which I think was 26% for a, a handful of names. And that's not healthy. I, we've talked before, you need a broadening out of the market. And we did get that in the fourth quarter. It was great. And now all of a sudden, because of the Fed possibly reversing on interest rate um, drops, is the market reacted back to the Magnificent Seven and the broad market sold off. So tomorrow's another day, John. We'll see what happens. But I do think rates will be lower by election time. And historically, when there's an incumbent president 16 times in a row, uh, the market's been up in that in that election year. So I'm going to go with the odds that the market will be higher uh, come November. And we're deploying our capital accordingly. I know it's only February. I don't wish that the market would settle at the end of the year where it is now, but we're at all-time highs. In the S&P, not in the broad market. If you look at the broad market, much of the broad market is trading at about 15 times earnings. Uh, you have the S&P much higher than that. And, of course, the Magnificent Seven is over, I think, an average of over 30 times earnings. Mm. So you can have a stealth bull market where the indexes don't perform, but the broad market underneath does very well, which you started to have in the fourth quarter, which we saw. So I think that's what's going to end up happening. I think you'll see a broadening out of the market, uh, a calming down of the Magnificent Six and those associated companies. And when they feel confident, the market, the economy will get better, and the Fed's not going to, and the Fed is going to basically stimulate. So if that happens, um, that'll be great. Cause that's how we're positioned with our clients right now for that happening in, in the second half of the year. Well, commodities underpin a lot of this. How are commodities doing out there? You know, it's it's a good question. I had this conversation with somebody earlier. Commodity prices, if you go look at the price of lumber, corn, wheat, all of that, it's all pretty. It's down. So why aren't we seeing it in the pricing when you go to the stores? I think a lot of companies are maintaining the higher prices because they know they can get them, and they're not, they don't have to lower them. And their labor costs are starting to come down because you're hearing a lot of people laying off, and people I talk to are telling me that it's easier to find labor at a reasonable price. So the commodity prices are coming down. I just don't think it's coming to the consumer. I think that's better margin for some of these companies, and eventually as competition sets in, yeah. hopefully we'll see a, more re- a, more, a better correlation – at the store versus what's in the raw market, um, in the commodity market. Well, I'm thinking about grocery prices, for one thing. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I can't believe what you pay for a pint of strawberries. <laughs> but, or a, a box of cereal, um, and, yeah. and the list goes on. But I, I also wonder how much of that is 
talk and how much of that is is truth. I mean, I know prices are higher, but prices tend to be higher. Um, are they unreasonably high now? Is inflation at the grocery store still as big a deal as the news about inflation is? I think it, I think the answer is yes and yes. Uh, you got if psychology moves mountains, and if people think one thing, but you can, what you can't do is when you get your grocery bill. And while it's, it should, inflation is coming down, it's still higher than it was three years ago. Many prices are still 20% more than you were paying three years ago. So that's still there. You actually need a little bit of deflation, I think, to come in equilibrium, which I think is a possibility in those areas you're referring to. So as, as, as unemployment goes up a little bit, yeah. wages should start to level off and come down, and then prices should come down. So it, it'll follow it as I think you get into the back half of the year, at least I hope that. And if that occurs, then you can have a really good economy and a really good market. Stephen Esposito is the president of Yellowstone Wealth Management. Click on YellowstoneWM.com. He's in Lake Forest. Nice to talk to you, Stephen. Thank you, John. Take care. Dennis Rodkins, senior reporter covering residential real estate for Crane's Chicago Business. Uh, welcome back, Dennis. Nice to see you. Hi, John. How are I, you? I chuckled a little bit. Good, thank you. When I saw that uh, Winnetka story move, I just thought, this thing just keeps on giving. It just keeps on giving. Catch us up on this. Okay, so this is the latest. Um, There was a lot of consternation in Winnetka over the course of last year when Justin Ishbia, who's building a giant mansion on the lakefront there, took down the bluffs. Winnetka, all the North Shore towns, you know, they're known for these beautiful bluff-top properties. His, His construction involved taking down the bluffs. There is now an ordinance uh, being discussed tonight at Winnetka Village Hall that changes a lot of the rules, tightens a lot of the rules on what property owners can build if they have these bluff top properties. Not only what they can build on the bluff, uh, what they can build on the table land at the top of the bluff, but on the on the bluff itself where you would build stairs, on the beach down below where you might build a boathouse. And um, what my story says is that while the council is considering this tonight, they also have hanging over their heads the threat of at least two, if not more, lawsuits from property owners who say, you know, you're, you're taking away my property rights. You are restricting what I can do with my property. Uh, there's a case study that an architect ran for one of these attorneys showing that for one particular property, um, if the new ordinance went through, the people would have to pull the house back farther from the lake. They would have a smaller footprint on which they could build. They would have to move the house somehow? Well, they haven't, bu- they, they haven't built yet, but uh, you would... Well, what happens to the people that already have these homes with the staircase? So this is one of the questions. Um, there is, built into this ordinance, there is a, an appeals process where you could say, you know, we, we have an old house with old stairs, we want to rebuild the stairs, and you can apply... The problem one of the attorneys says is, if I'm the buyer of that property, a lot of this work gets done when it transfers. I've been living here for 30 years and haven't done it. You buy from me and you make the improvements. What this one attorney said to me is, you're not going to take the time. There are other people bidding on this property. You would have to go and spend, say, four or five months in the zoning process getting the approval to what you want to do, and you don't have the time for that, and somebody outbids you. So uh, according to this attorney, what would happen is prices come down on those lakefront properties on the North Shore. 
And in Chicago proper along the lakefront, there's no private residences there. It's public property. It's Lakeshore Drive. It's the museum campus. That's one thing that makes the properties on the lakefront on the North Shore more valuable, is that you got to get to Evanston before you can have a back door that opens out to the lake. And I know this has already been resolved. I mean, those houses are there, but as a public entity, the lake and lakefront, the beach, the water, I like that, that that's a public thing in Chicago as opposed to private property in Winneka. Well, don't forget, the, the beach itself is not property. This Part of what has gone on in this discussion of the development of the Ishbia property is what down at the water level is it gets public access. Yeah. The, the essential, the, the basic law is if your feet are wet, you're not on private property. So if you're walking, you know, <laughs> your see, ankles. Um, and so there are questions about private property owners restricting access to their beach. Um, but for some of these properties we're talking about, public people would never really get there because you're, let's say, the 10th of 20 properties lined up in a row. So the question of public access, certainly somebody could walk past all those and get to your property. But uh, what this ordinance is about really is what you'd build if you build a a boathouse down at the water level, the stairs and terraces you build on the bluff, all the things that would be out of reach of the public. You also wrote a story, Illinois Realtors planned $1 million campaign against the transfer tax increase. Catch me up on that. Last week, the head of Illinois Realtors sat down with us and talked about what they plan to do. The transfer tax increase, as you know, is uh, the, the transfer tax is something you pay only at the time of the sale. So it's not an ongoing tax. It's more like it's a fee. It's more like a fee. It's a one-time thing you pay. And the Bring Home Chicago proposal would increase the transfer tax on everything, every property sold for a million dollars or more. Uh, that's residential or commercial. And one of the things I've figured out is that because there's a cut below a million, uh, it actually becomes an increase only if you pay more than $1.12 million. Because of the cut below a million, it's an incremental tax, the cut below a million is bigger than the increase until you get to $1.12. So the, a lot of property owners have been upset, commercial and residential. Illinois Realtors is out there, uh, is planning to come out with postcards and digital ads and other things to the tune of about a million dollars. And if, uh, if the figures I have are right, they will be outspending the other side, the side that supports this referendum that's on the ballot March 19th, because a colleague of mine, Justin Lawrence, found that they are, they're spending about $750,000. However, they seem to have a larger group of um, volunteers. They seem to have have more people knocking on doors, which doesn't necessarily cost you anything. Both sides quite committed to their opinion of the uh, Bring Chicago Home ordinance or referendum. On the but transfer the, tax. But why would the realtors take that position? 90% of the homes are sold at less than a million dollars, right? Well, so keep in mind, this is on residential and commercial property. Oh. Um, the, the people who buy homes at over a million dollars or at five, ten million dollars where... Um, they're really subject to this tax. They're upset, but the commercial property people are far more upset because there are far more sales that are in the ten, twenty, thirty million dollar range where that increase would would really hit them. I wonder what the upshot of that would be. Would that then discourage businesses from locating or encourage businesses to leave Chicago? I mean, what would the upshot of this be? That is what people who oppose who oppose the the increase say is that, 
um, I would have a harder time getting a buyer for my property. Proper people who are thinking of buying into investing into commercial real estate in Chicago might curtail their investment. The question is, you know, the question, that's what we forecast, but it would really only be after such a tax is enacted that we'd find out whether that was true. Right, right, right. And then it might be hard to keep score on that. It, uh, but, but Yeah, there's no proving a negative. I didn't invest in Chicago. Why didn't I? But, but, but it does, if you're just talking about homeowners, uh, and I know that if you own a three-flat, saying you live in one of them, you're a homeowner, but you're, that, that's a multi-million dollar. Yeah. That's a million-dollar property for sure. In some neighborhoods, it's a two- or three-million-dollar property. Yeah. yeah, So, but I think they were pitching. Well, I know they were pitching it as though 90% of us are going to see a tax cut on the transfer tax, which sounds very appealing. I mean, that's what Brandon Johnson ran on. Yes, and that, that is the appeal that a lot of people see. It, this is not a tax on me and you, a wealthy person, buying a $3 million house. You can afford this increase in the fee, and you should be helping to fight homelessness, which is where all the money generated by this increase in the, in the transfer tax would go. The question, one of the things one real estate agent has said in, in a story we did is, why are rich people being treated as an ATM why should they be the ones mm-hmm. who dispense the money to, to fight homelessness? And that, I mean, that's a, a philosophical debate we could have for hours. Yeah, should right. wealthy people be on the hook to help fight the homelessness problem? Should everybody be on the hook well, I to think, fight the homelessness problem? I think problem? the mayor's answer is yes. That wealthy people should? Yeah. I asked him point blank when he was in our offices during the campaign, why isn't this applying to all property transfers? Why shouldn't I buying a $100,000 condo somewhere on the south or west sides, pay the same as pay a percentage. What's the difference between that and my $10 million condo somebody else bought on, on Lakeshore Drive in creating homelessness? You know, everybody who drives pays gas taxes, whether they drive 100 miles or a mile. So I asked, and he, 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 what he said is that it is appropriate, more appropriate for this to be a progressive tax that goes to wealthy people funding it. You wrote, the impact would be far more widespread on the commercial side where transaction amounts are far larger. The buyers who in August spent $2.6 million for, the, for an Irving Park site of a dry cleaner where they plan to build a daycare paid $19,500 in transfer taxes on $2.6 million. If Bring Home Chicago comes to four, then they would pay $49,000 with twenty nine five, the difference allotted to the city's efforts to combat homelessness. Honestly, I think both those numbers are high. I stay there, Dennis Rodkin. Okay. He's the Crane's residential real estate reporter. It's 1244 on WGM. We've got more business news with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. Rivian, the electric vehicle maker who's building trucks in downstate Normal, has teased a new smaller and less expensive SUV. The RT will be a midsize SUV and priced between $40,000 and $60,000. It's slated for debut in 2026. For reference, Rivian's older R1 model sells for around $73,000. Some analysts say the new SUV will challenge Tesla's Model Y, which starts at $45,000. Rivian's R2 is also being designed for global markets and will fit European and Chinese streets. A new report says Wells Fargo is pulling back on plans to open two new branches in Chicago. Cranes reports the bank has withdrawn applications for branches in Old Town and West Town, according to regulatory filings. The two branches were supposed to be part of Wells Fargo's planned retail expansion into the Chicago market. 
The expansion was also to include Bronzeville, Wicker Park, and Lincoln Park. Wells Fargo opened its first Chicago branch in River North last month and has seven other branches in Evanston, Niles, Palatine, and Elmhurst. I'm Steve Grutanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Business of Food Now with Steve Alexander. Yeah, thank you, and we can't let Black History Month go by without a tribute to the great food we enjoy today that has black roots. And let's talk about barbecue after I thank the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com for sponsoring us. There has never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox and then hop in and drive to get some barbecue. On the line is Cortez Trotter. He is the owner of 911 Barbecue Shack. Where'd you get that name, Cortez? Well, the name is uh, taken in part because of, uh, you know, my first responder background, and it's just sort of a tip of hat to all of the first responders in police, fire, sheriff, state police, OEM, all the 911 operators, the nurses, trauma center, emergency rooms. A tip of the hat to to everybody that does something to help someone else in that chain. In fact, we uh, during the pandemic, we, we fed first responders to the tune of uh, hundreds. And our commitment to the to the first responders in the neighborhood is one that is um, continues every day. Well, you've got first responder in your background, including 30 years with Chicago Fire. Is that where you learned how to cook? Well, I've always liked to uh, bump around in the kitchen and outdoors. And this was something that I uh, had, a, you know, just an urging to do to see how it would work out, and it's it's uh, it's got me working harder than I thought it would. Yeah, 911 Barbecue Shack. You've been at it at the same location in Mount Greenwood since 2018. Cortez, what do you sell the most of? Oh, the top sellers are the brisket and the ribs and rib tips. Awesome. How can people find out more about your barbecue? Go to the website, 911bbqshack.com. And be sure to spell out the words 911. We do catering. We feature brisket, bull pork, ribs, hot links, chicken, and uh, an assortment of comfort sides, mac and cheese, baked beans, and the lot. So you can find us. We're at 2734 West 111th Street, and we are open from 1030 a.m. Tuesday through Saturday until we sell out. Once it's gone, it's gone. <laughs> I like that. Cortez Trotter, 911 Barbecue Shack. On the food calendar, it's National Frozen Yogurt Today and National Chopsticks Day. <laughs> no, the ones you eat with. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. Dennis Rodkin, senior reporter covering residential real estate for Crane's Chicago Business, is in our studio. Um, it's always fun when you talk about the highest priced home sales for any given quarter or year. You wrote about that too, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. For 2023, I have the year-end um, list out, and one thing that's that I found interesting is that both the highest priced and the number 50th price dropped from from a year before. Highest price of the year in 2023 was about $12.5 million for a house sold in Winnetka. There, in 2022, there were five properties that sold for more than that, topping out at over $20 million. So at the extreme upper end, it came down. And then uh, the bottom, the number 50 price, was 5.5 million in 2022 and 4.45 million mm. in 2023, a difference of a million dollars. So what we're seeing is uh, some air coming out of that upper end market. 2022 really was um, much more bullish than 2023. What does that mean? Uh, well, you know, over the course of several years, if we were to see those changes continue, we'd start to be scared. But the as the housing boom has faded at all prices, we've seen a lot of air come out. 
And this is just another reflection of that. I don't think anybody should be saying yet, oh, nobody's buying properties in Chicago, because still 50 people paid more than $4.4 million for properties in the Chicago area. And we've already, so far this year, had, I think, six sales at that level. So it's not a sign that, you know, Chicago is over. It's just a sign that that housing boom has, the fade in the housing boom has reached that upper end market. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, would lower interest rates affect that end of the market? Probably not. Right? Well, you know what agents tell me? So it was interesting. During the boom, all of a sudden, agents were saying, well, wealthy people are using mortgages as well because the rates are so low that it becomes very cheap to borrow money, and I'd rather borrow that and keep my money in something that's performing even better. That has gone away because interest rates have gone up. But what it does do is the person who's going to buy my $4 million house might be trading up from, let's say, $1.6 million, and that person may not be able to sell their house. So it's like a chain reaction. The bottom of the chain is stalled, so the upper end of the chain slows down. There aren't as many buyers moving their way up through because of interest rates. And so then when it gets to that upper end, there's not a buyer waiting for my well, house. I thought at that end, they were paying cash a lot of them anyway. They are, yeah. But it's the people, it's trying to get somebody to buy my house who can't, uh-huh. who can't work their way up through the stair steps because interest rates are so high. Colin Cowherd buys Michigan Avenue condo. And I have no idea why. This is so interesting, John. Colin Cowherd is a sports analyst, a, a broadcaster for Fox Sports. He's been around for a couple of decades. Very strongly identified with L.A. I read up on his many real estate transactions in Los Angeles. Last summer, he and his wife sold a big house in California for $10 million. They bought an estate in Rhode Island for $8.5 million. And then in January, they bought a uh, $3.25 million condo here in Chicago. I cannot find a reason. They don't work here. Uh, Neither of them grew up here. I couldn't reach him to find out why. So, you know, here's this. He's a very well-known person. What's ironic about this? What's very ironic about it is he bought the condo just a few in Chicago, just a few weeks before kind of bad-mouthing the Chicago Bears. He said that Caleb Williams, a USC quarterback who's believed to be on his way to becoming a massive star in the NFL, um, Colin Cowherd said that Williams doesn't want to come to Chicago uh, he, he described the Bears as Loserville. He said there's a culture of losing uh, on the Bears. He ended up having to walk that back later that same day when Caleb Williams's people said, you know, we have not ruled out Chicago, but it's sort of interesting that this guy has just bought a condo in Chicago and, and is bad-mouthing the Chicago Bears. Not the way to get to know your neighbors. The condo that was owned formerly by the CEO of the company that we used to work for here, Dennis Fitzsimons. Yeah, Dennis Fitzsimons. He's two owners ago. Cowherd bought from somebody else, an, uh, a legal entity that uh, bars the name. But Dennis Fitzsimons, after sort of brokering the deal to sell the Tribune to Sam Zell, shortly after that bought this condo for about $2.6 million and had it for, what, five years well, I guess we're not a loserville if a guy who has no reason to be here. I mean, he's not going to be working for Marquee Sports. Wants a condo in the city. I presume he's going to be hanging out at the beach or going to the Bean or something. Going to Bears games maybe to watch Caleb Williams play. <laughs> okay, well that's a that's a weird story. Dennis Rodkin, senior reporter at Cranes on the residential real estate scene. Do come in again. Thanks, John. I will.